Father, most of all, as we have seen from the very beginning of our study of Revelation, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And more than anything else, we want to uplift and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and recognizing that this book, more than any other book in the Bible, Lord portrays Christ in the glorified way more than any other book. And so, Lord, we just pray tonight that however we've come into this study and wherever we've come from, that, Lord, more than anything else, we want to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up tonight as we leave here. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. More folks are coming. Yay! Give them cards. <laughs> Give them cards. Uh, we're passing out some, some cards that we want you to use as sort of like an advertisement. If you know somebody that would really appreciate being in the mine, seriously, my goal is I want to see... There's 90 chairs here set up for Tuesday night. I'd like to see all 90 seats taken in a couple of weeks. I know it's going to take us a couple of weeks to build back up the momentum, but I would love to see 90 people in here on Tuesday. Okay? In fact, it would be great if we had more than 90, but we'll, we'll keep praying. All right. I know I've got a lot to cover, folks, so let's get to it. Revelation chapter 4. He, Jesus Christ is done speaking to the church. Once you get to Revelation chapter 4, you never see the church mentioned again in the book of Revelation. And now you come to this part where he says, After these things I, John, looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here so that I can show you what must happen after these things. And so he is taken up into heaven. A couple of things. What we learn from this is this. That what we are about to study, what we are about to read, what we are about to be confronted with in the book of Revelation, we need heaven's perspective on these things. And that's one of the reasons why John is taken to heaven. We cannot look at what is going to take place in the book of Revelation from the perspective of heaven. We have got to see it from, the, or from earth. We have got to see it from the perspective of heaven. And that's why John is taken to heaven to see these things and to begin to understand these things. So I guess we could say it this way. We cannot look at what we're about to look at from our own perspective, from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, we must see it from God's perspective. We must see it from heaven's perspective. And that's one of the reasons why John is taken there. Also, you notice here that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of a place called heaven. Heaven is a real place. God said it's real. I accept it as real. I'm going there one day because I accept it as real. That's what faith is all about. Faith is simply believing God's view about things as He has revealed them in His Word. Whether it's about how this whole thing got started or how it's going to end. The book of Revelation. Faith is simply believing God's view about it as He has revealed it in His Word. And the Bible says there's a heaven. And I believe it and I'm going there one day because I have a personal relationship with Christ and I hope you are as well. Now, I want to say this. I believe that the reality of heaven is going to be much greater than the description of it. Revelation, later on, we're going to find a little bit of a description of heaven. But let's face it. When we get there, I think the reality of it is going to be much greater than the description that we can even get. Because as we see many times in our study of Revelation, as we're going to see tonight, John is groping for human language to try to describe what he's seeing. And a lot of times he says, well, it's like this, or it's like that. And it's, it looks a little bit like that, but... There's just no way to describe it. So 
For those of us who have family members and friends and people that we know who are there in heaven, they're in an unbelievable place. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And they have been with the Lord ever since they died. And they are in a wonderful place called heaven. And they wouldn't want to come back here. They just want us to come up there to be with them. And hopefully if you know the Lord Jesus, that's going to be your future one day. You're going to be in heaven with them. You also notice at the end of verse 1, he remarks that these things I need to show you because these are things that must happen. And don't miss that word must. God has written the history and the destiny of the universe and he must bring these things to pass. If he doesn't bring these things to pass, he's not God. He has told us what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and it must happen that way. And he is the only one that can bring this all about and can bring about the destiny that he's already written about of how this is all going to end. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Now, what I want you to see in chapter 4, and I'm not going to take time to read the whole chapter tonight, is this. The one thing that John is mesmerized by in Revelation chapter 4 is a throne. You will notice here, in these 11 verses of Revelation chapter 4, if you count them up, the throne of God is mentioned 11 times in 11 verses. Now, when you and I study the Word of God, one of the things that we have to do is, when we're studying the Word of God, if something is repeated often, or if it's referred to a lot, that means there's a real emphasis there. And so, 11 times in 11 verses, there's a real emphasis on the throne of God. That's the one thing, more than anything else, that John wants us to to focus on in Revelation chapter 4. So, what I want you to take away from this is this. When someone asks you, what is Revelation chapter 4 about, you can tell them. It's about the throne of God. And that the Apostle John was mesmerized and in awe of the throne of God. You'll notice in verse 2 the throne of God is mentioned. Verse 3 it's mentioned. Verse 4 it's mentioned. Verse 5 it's mentioned. At the end of verse 5 it's mentioned again. Verse 6 it's mentioned three times. In verse 9 it's mentioned once. In verse 10 it's mentioned twice. Eleven times in eleven verses John mentions the throne of God. Why? Because you and I cannot rightly think about anything else until we've settled in our minds that there is a throne of God in heaven and the God of the Bible is on that throne. You see, atheists would say, first of all, there is no God, therefore there is no throne. Humanists would say, there's a throne, but man is on the throne. And John is saying, no, no, there's a throne and the God of the Bible is on that throne. And when you and I realize in our lives and we have settled in our minds and our hearts that there is a God and He is on the throne... My friends, that settles a lot of stuff. God is on His throne. So as we look at the world, and as we watch the news, and as we see what's going on in the newspapers, let's remember something, and let's remind ourselves of something. God has always been on His throne. God is on His throne. He will always be on that throne. And there's nothing that's happening that's outside of His sovereignty and His providence. He is the God on the throne. Amen? Amen. And He's on the throne in our lives as well, so that whatever we're going through, my friends, He's on the throne. He's still in control. Alright? Don't ever forget that. That's one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. The writer spends a whole chapter dealing with the fact that God is on His throne. Now, interestingly, just a couple things about this vision of the throne of God. You'll notice in verse 3, there's a rainbow around the throne. 
I don't think that's an accident. Because the rainbow reminds us all the way back to the book of Genesis about the promise God and the covenant God made with Noah, saying, I will never destroy the world by a flood again. And it just reminds us that God is committed to his covenant promises with men. And that God has obligated himself never to do anything that would contradict what he's already promised to us. Remember that. God has obligated himself. Whatever he has promised us, he has to fulfill. He cannot go against his promises. And I think even as John sees the throne of God and sees this rainbow around the throne, we are reminded that God is always you know, reminded that I have some promises that I need to keep with those down there. And one of them is that promise all the way back to the book of Genesis with Noah. God keeps his co- God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And we need to remember that. That's something we can take with us every day. God never forgets his promises. God always honors his promises. God is always faithful to his promises. There are some 30,000 promises in the Bible that God has given us. 30,000 promises. Do you know what they are? Do you, have you received them? Do you live by them? Do you embrace them? We need to study the promises that God has given to us and truly believe them. If we believe that God is on his throne and we believe he's given us these promises, my friends, that can take us through some tough times. And that's why even studying the book of Revelation, things that are going to happen in the future, yet we can apply the principles and the things that we learn right to our everyday lives, even today as we live on this earth. Another thing that I see there in Revelation chapter 4 is this. You'll notice in verse 5, he talks about lightning and roars and crashes of thunder. And it just reminds us the awe. The the awe that John is associating with the throne of God. It's beyond our comprehension. Now, he talks about 24 elders there, you'll notice. I don't know who the 24 elders are. Let me tell you something. Nobody really knows who the 24 elders are. So we're not going to spend a lot of time speculating. Who are these 24 elders? Now, if you read Bible books on Revelation and Covenant, there will be people who say, well, the 24 elders are the uh, representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles or 12 disciples. And you know what? That might be a good guess. But guess what? The Bible doesn't say definitively. So I'm not going to spend an hour trying to convince you of that. I don't know. Nobody knows. So guess what? There's 24 elders there. That's all well and good. They, you know, they worship the Lord. That's all I need to know. Okay? That's all we need to know. At least at this point. I'll find out who the 24 elders are when we get there. Okay? Now, I do want to say this. You'll notice then beginning in verse 6. Around the throne or in the middle of the throne, they begin to describe, John, these living creatures. These sort of angelic beings. And I, I just want to... Spend a second here with these because these creatures are pretty cool. Notice, they are full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second creature was like an ox. The third creature had a face like a man's. The fourth creature looked like an eagle flying. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. Ooh. But I want to make this comment. It just shows us the creativity of God in his creation. When he even created these beings, what 
you know, what ingenuity, what creativity, just like some of the animals and things that we see today. Just fascinating, the colors and the, the things that they can do, whatever. These creatures, these angelic beings are just awesome. And it just reminds us again, guess what? God created you unique as well. There is no one else exactly like you. You have a unique set of gifts, abilities, talents, personality that you bring to the table and that God has given you. And just like these you know, created beings, there's no one else like you. You are unique just like they are. But what I want to remind you and, and me of tonight is this. Guess what? What are they preoccupied with here? Worshiping Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. And their worship of Jesus should prompt us to worship Jesus as well. Uh, one of the other things that I like here is at the end of verse 8, notice the Bible says they never rest day or night. They're just always worshiping God. They're just preoccupied with worshiping God. And they know God better than anybody knows God because they're right in the middle of the throne of God. And they just, they're right there in the, at the throne of God. And they never rest. And yet, isn't it interesting that though the Bible says they never rest in their worship of God, they also have no unrest either. You know, isn't it interesting that a lot of times people on the earth, human beings, we get caught up into so many different things and, and we're, we're going after this and we're over here and we're involved with this and that and there's a lot of unrest in our lives. There's a lot of unrest out there in the world today. There's a lot of people who aren't at rest. They're not at peace. One of the neat things is the Bible says, you know what, these living beings, these creatures that God made, they never rest. In worshiping God. But guess what? They're also at rest, in a sense. There's no unrest there. You know, they're perfectly happy and joyful, just filling their lives and their time with worshiping the Lord who sits on the throne. You'll notice in verse 8, they proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful, or the almighty. And literally in the original language, this word means the one who has his hand on everything. That's what the word means. The one who has his hand on everything. Remember, Revelation chapter 4 is saying he's on the throne. He is on the throne. He's in control. We've got to always... Everything that we see going on, we've got to remember that. Even in our own lives, God has never left the throne, all right? And, and he's there, and he's ruling, and he's reigning, and he's going to keep his promises, okay? And they're just worshiping him. Now, you'll notice then, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders throw themselves on the ground before the one who sits on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they offer their crowns before his throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And once again, we see throughout the book of Revelation where people and angels and beings and elders are just worshiping God. That's part of what heaven is going to be like. And so again, as we read through the book of Revelation, as we study the book of Revelation, one of the things that we can practically apply to our lives 
is their worship of God in heaven should prompt our worship of God. It should stir us to say, you know what, I need to, I need to worship God more. I need to take time just to adore Him, just to go before Him, just to be amazed at, at His creation and what He's done in my life and just to praise Him and give Him thanks because this is what's happening in heaven. And if it's happening in heaven, it should be happening here as well. And if we are calling ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and we've been impacted in our relationship with God, then let us worship Him as they worship Him. One other thing, and then I'm going to stop after each chapter tonight and again open it up for questions and comments. I don't want you to think we're not going to do that. Is this. You'll notice in chapter 4 that primarily He's worshipped because He's the Creator. And you'll notice that there's no divided opinions about that in heaven. They're not up there in heaven trying to discover... Now, God, did you create the world, or did the world come some other way? No. It's all been settled in heaven. It has been settled ever since it happened in heaven. They're not up there wasting their time trying to argue about, is there a God? Is there a heaven? Did he create it all that? And so what I'm trying to say is this. Isn't it sad that on this earth, there are human beings that spend their whole life trying to discover the things that if they would just, again, embrace God's view on it, They wouldn't have to waste their life trying to figure out, is there a God? Is there a heaven? Did he create things? If you just embrace what the Bible says, you wouldn't have to waste your life figuring all that out. It's already been figured out for it. Just believe it. Just embrace it because God said it. You weren't there when he created the world. I wasn't there when he created the world. So again, the only person that was there when the world was created was God. I think I'll accept his viewpoint because no human being was back there. And the primary thing he's, he's... Because again... His being the creator underwrites everything else that he's worshipped for. I mean, again, we've got to get the basics down. And, and, and I've got to believe, first of all, that there is a God, that there is a heaven, that there's a throne in heaven, and that the God of the Bible sits on that throne, and that the God of the Bible created everything that I see. If I don't nail that down, then everything else sort of falls on those truths. And so that's why we've got to come back to the Bible and we've got to embrace what the Bible says would cause ourselves a lot of less, you know, hassle in this world if we just would embrace God's viewpoint on it. And that's what Revelation chapter 4 is all about. God created the world. He's already being worshipped and praised for that up in heaven. Let's praise him for it down here. And you know what? Being out here in Arizona is just another place where we can see the beauty of God's creation and not just in nature, but let's not forget that as we look at each other, we should see the beauty of God's creation there as well. You, again, are a unique, beautiful, wonderful creation of God. He made you like no one else, and he wants you to come to a personal relationship with him where you can give him glory. All right. That's chapter four. We got through a whole chapter, folks. See, I told you we could do it. record time. Almost in chapter five. All right, but before we get to chapter five, Comments, questions. All right, I'm not going to stop. Let's go on to chapter 5. All right, now when we get to chapter 5, here's what John says. And notice here, in the Bible, God never wastes words. So, everything is important, and there's a reason for it. So notice how John begins to build the scene here. All right? He says, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Well, right hand was always sort of the 
the sign of, of, of power, and the right hand was the sign in the place of favor. So I saw in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne a scroll. And this wasn't just any scroll. This scroll, unlike ancient scrolls, was written on the inside and on the outside, on the front and the back. That made it unusual. And instead of being sealed with one seal, John says this scroll was sealed with seven seals. And I didn't just see any old angel, verse 2. I saw a powerful angel. I saw an Arnold angel. You know, big angel. It's like, well, you mean there's... There's scrawny angels? I guess because John is saying that this angel appeared more powerful than other angels. Okay? And so he says, I saw a powerful angel proclaiming not in just any voice, but he says, in a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? What is the scroll? Well, as we study and as you read the rest of the book of Revelation, you come to find out that what this scroll is is basically the destiny of mankind and the destiny of the earth. And, and, and what he's reminding us of here is that only the one who is on the throne really has the ability to even hold that in his hand. Because as we're going to see here in just a moment, in verses 3 and 4... That no one in creation or nothing in creation is capable of deciding or affecting the earth's destiny or the universe's destiny for that matter. Only someone above creation, the creator, can determine the destiny of the universe. So notice in verse 3, John is here in heaven seeing this and he says, there was a universal search. And after the universal search, John says, no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth was able to open the scroll or not even just to open it. They couldn't even look at it. And notice John's reaction in verse 4. So I began to weep bitterly. Literally in the original, sob, audible sobs. I mean, John was broken up by the fact that no one in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth could open the scroll. Why? Because what that meant was there was no one that was going to change things for the better. There was no one out. The earth was just going to go on and things were just going to keep getting worse and Nobody was going to be able to really intervene and, and tie all this together and, and bring some kind of, of conclusion to all this that meant something. And so John is beginning to see the gravity of this. If there's no one in the universe that can open this scroll, where do we go from here? Who are we? Where are we? What's our destiny? Where do we end up? Is, is there any purpose for our lives? So no wonder John is weeping bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then, one of these elders that we were introduced to in chapter 4 says to me, stop weeping. Stop weeping. One is rescuing here, John, from grief by pointing him, notice, to the great figure of Old Testament prophecy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The elder says to John, look, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's been victorious. He has overcome. Thus, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder is saying, guess what? Somebody has been found to bring this all to a conclusion. Somebody has been found that can give this universe and all of creation a meaningful end and purpose. Somebody has been found who can, who can secure all these promises that have been given to us and can fulfill these promises and can take us to the destiny that He promised to take us, which is this heaven we've been introduced to here in Revelation chapter 4. But then notice verse 6 of chapter 5. Instead of seeing this lion of the tribe of Judah, this great Old Testament figure of prophecy that was the fulfillment of, of all the Old Testament prophecies, which, by the way, there are 2,500 prophecies contained in the Bible. 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to the letter. There are only 500 left to be fulfilled, many of them what we're already studying in the book of Revelation. One of the great... arguments, if you will, or defenses for our faith is fulfilled prophecy, my friends. I mean, to, to have fulfilled 2,000 prophecies to the letter, no error at all, is unbelievable. No other religion, you know, people again today, well, aren't all religions the same? Aren't all faiths the same? No. Do you realize there's no other religion or faith out there that has any kind of fulfilled prophecy connected with it? None. If you read the Koran, and I'm just not knocking on that, I'm just talking about all religions, but I'm just using it as an example. There are no prophecies in the Koran, therefore there's no fulfilled prophecies. <coughs> Do you realize there's 2,000 already fulfilled prophecies from the Bible? So don't buy into the fact that there's no difference between religions or faiths. One of the big differences is fulfilled prophecy, my friends. And if one of those prophecies would not have come true, then we can just chuck this in the fireplace and it's all over. But again, one of the things that proves that there is a God on the throne and He wrote the Bible and it's all true is because every one of them has come true exactly as He said. In fact, I don't know whether you've ever heard this, but there's a scientist in Pasadena, California that works for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he's a brilliant man who deals with probability and mathematics, and one day he figured out that if you just took eight prophecies concerning Jesus Christ out of the 2,000 that's already been fulfilled, if you take eight of those as they have been fulfilled exactly in one man, Jesus Christ, he said the probability of those eight prophecies being fulfilled that closely in one man is the same probability, and you probably heard this, as filling the state of Texas with quarters two feet deep and marking one quarter over the state of Texas with a red marker and asking someone who is blind to go into those quarters, and that the probability of him picking out the one quarter in the whole state of Texas, two feet deep, with the red one, is the same probability of those eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, it's just a coincidence. It's just This is just a regular book. This isn't God's word, yada, yada, yada. No way. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's fulfilled a thousand prophecies, you see. And, and so I encourage you, study it. If you, if you doubt it, study it. Study the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And then study Jesus Christ. And you will begin to see how there's no way that one person could, all that could have lined up unless it was true. Unless he truly is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But notice in verse 6, I saw standing in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures in the middle of the elders now, not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb that appeared to have been killed. He was living, but he still has the marks of his sacrificial love upon him. And we talked about that. That Jesus even told Thomas, Thomas, if you doubt I am the resurrected Christ, put your finger there in my nail prints. Touch the side where the spear went in. You can still see the scars because Jesus Christ, unlike us, will carry those scars throughout eternity as a sign of his sacrificial love for you and for me. You'll also notice that this figure, it's so weird because you have this lamb who you usually don't think of in a, in a great, you know, lamb, a lion, yeah, but not a lamb. But this lamb had seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And these were just ways of saying that this lamb is omnipotent, seven horns, and omniscient, seven eyes, spirits of God. In other words, the lamb is God. And he still has the marks of his sacrificial love, but he is God. And he is about to unleash upon this earth judgment. But before he unleashes judgment, John wants us all to know something. That before he unleashes judgment upon the earth, he is reminding us here in Revelation chapter 5 that this lamb took our judgment upon himself so that we wouldn't have to take this judgment that's about to come. So that for anybody who's going to experience these judgments that are about to come in the book of Revelation, they have simply rejected the Lamb who came to take that judgment upon Himself. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ took our judgment upon Himself so that when you and I embrace Him and accept Him as our personal Savior, we are saying, Jesus, I don't want to pay the penalty for my sin. I'm going to accept your payment. You died for me on the cross. You took my pain. You took my judgment upon yourself. I accept that so that I never have to experience that. But for these folks in the book of Revelation who are about to experience that judgment, John wants to remind us of something. There was a way of escape. They don't have to go through what they're going through. They are choosing to go through what they're going to go through because they have chosen to reject the one and only one who can take that judgment upon himself. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's not forget that. He took all judgment upon himself. It's just a matter of, are we going to accept his payment for our sins? Or are we going to, in a sense, pay for our own sin? And then the Bible says, verse 7, He, the Lamb, came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, 
the response is immediate. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, throw themselves to the ground before the Lamb. Each of them had a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And notice what this incense is. It is the prayers of the saints of God. And I just want to pause there and remind us that I think that what this verse is telling us is just how precious our prayers are to God. He regards them as a sweet-smelling incense. So the next time you pray and you think, does it really? Does God really care if I pray? Does God really care if I talk to Him? Oh yeah, He cares a whole bunch. He cares so much that I believe He collects our prayers and He keeps them as a sweet-smelling incense before His throne. There's a battle over prayer. The enemy doesn't want us to pray. But God is saying to us tonight, you pray and you keep praying. Your prayers are a sweet-smelling incense before my throne. You notice also in verse 9, they're singing a new song. Why, why not an old song? Well, because the Bible says that God's mercies are forever new. And even during the great tribulation, we're going to see God's mercy and God's grace. And so even in heaven, they're going to sing God a new song because they're going to be seeing God's mercies even in a new way there as well. But it keeps coming back to the fact that he's worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. Why? Notice again, because you were killed, and at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. That's one of the promises of God, right there. We will rule and reign with Christ on the earth during his millennial kingdom. My friends, John is just simply reminding us here that if if Revelation chapter 4 was primarily about the throne and about God, we're being reminded that God is on the throne, he's keeping his promises, and that he's being worshipped as the creator in Revelation chapter 4, then here's a quick synopsis of Revelation chapter 5. If someone was to ask you, well, what's Revelation chapter 5 about? Instead of saying it's about a throne, you would say it's about a scroll. Because just like in Revelation chapter 4, where throne is mentioned 11 times, in Revelation chapter 5, this scroll is mentioned over and over and over. That's what fascinates John. Not the throne, but now this scroll, because this scroll represents the destiny of the universe. And no one could, could open it except the line of the tribe of Judah. That lamb who still had the sacrificial marks of his, of his love upon him. And John now is reminding us that unlike in Revelation chapter 4, where he's primarily worshipped as creator, here in Revelation chapter 5, he's primarily worshipped as our redeemer, as our savior. And so the concentration in Revelation chapter 4 is on creation. The concentration then as far as God is concerned in Revelation chapter 5 would be salvation. Creation, salvation. Those are the two primary things that God is worshipped for in heaven. And so you can give someone a very quick synopsis of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. A couple other things, and I'm going to open it up again for comments and, and whatnot. You'll notice that in beginning in verse 11, that an innumerable company of angels and elders and, and thousands upon thousands, millions are all singing, verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. A sevenfold praise. 
Because again, seven in the Bible is sort of that number of completion. And so it's just a way of saying, you know what? We're just praising God up one side and down the other. We're just, we're just worshiping Him because He is worthy of our worship. And everything that we can do to worship God, we're going to worship Him. Again, let's remember, folks, that heaven is a place filled with worship. And therefore, if we're going to be part of heaven, we need to start learning how to really worship God down here on the earth. And so we need to focus on worshiping God and adoring Him and praising Him. You'll also notice in verse 13 that to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. And I want you just to notice there that Jesus Christ is clearly worshipped as God in heaven. He and the Father here in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 5 as in many other places are linked as equal. And what I want to say to that is simply this. There are some people on the earth that somehow think that they can be part of heaven without worshiping Jesus Christ as God. My friends, you can't be part of heaven unless you're willing to worship Jesus Christ as God. Because in heaven, even right now, as we're seeing here, Jesus Christ is worshipped as God. Clear. We just have to accept it. Okay? And then the other thing is simply that at the end of verse 13, we are reminded that the living God reigns eternally. His kingdom is without end, forever and ever and ever, and we're going to reign forever and ever and ever, and that's hard to understand, but again, it's forever and ever. (laughs) All right? And the four living creatures were saying, Amen. And the elders threw themselves to the ground, and guess what? Here we go. Worship again. I think you're getting the picture. That when we left the earth, there wasn't much worship. When we get to heaven, there's a lot of worship going on up there. And what we have to begin to look at is what's going to happen in Revelation from that perspective rather than from where we are down here. How do we get that heavenly perspective? The Bible. If we want to know God's view on things, the best place to get it is go to his word and he'll share with us what his view is. Worshipped as Creator in chapter 4. Worshipped as Redeemer in chapter 5. Main focus in chapter 4 is on the throne of God. He's there, always has been, always will be, never going to leave. Revelation chapter 5, it's this scroll that unfolds the destiny of of humanity and the universe that John is enamored with in chapter 5. So I hope this gives you a good understanding. And we've gotten through two chapters tonight. I told you. I told you. I've been praying about this for a long time. Because really, I I don't want to drag out the book of Revelation. I want you to know that I'm already studying for next fall. Because I I share with them, we're going to be studying 1st and 2nd Peter, the letters of Peter, next fall. And I I am so excited about sharing with you guys So many great things out of those books. So I want to finish out Revelation this spring, and I want us to dive into... And and I have a method to my madness, if you follow me here. The first book we studied when I came on to start teaching the mind for Lynn was Philippians, back in the fall. That was a book written by Paul. We're studying the book of Revelation, and that was written by John. So I thought, okay, we've already studied a book written by Paul. We're studying a book written by John. So to balance things out, we're going to study a book or books written by Peter and try to balance things out. I think that I do have a method here, you know? Somebody like, why Peter? Well, you know, there's a reason for that. We're going to try to get a balanced, you know, view of things and, and get different perspective because even though it's all God's word, 
God did not override the personalities of the human writers of the Bible. So Paul has a certain way of writing, and God used that, and John has a certain way of writing and looking at things, and Peter obviously has a certain way of looking. Nobody was closer to the Lord while he was here on earth than the Apostle Peter, and I think you're going to enjoy that study, but we're going to begin that next year. So we want to get finished the Revelation, and I don't want to, again, drag it out. We're going to cover it, but we're not going to, you know, get, get caught into the, the mire of it. So we're going to go on here to chapter 6 in just a minute, but before we do, comments or questions about chapter 5 or back to chapter 4. Yes, Brian. So since there's no mention of the church beyond chapter 3, is it possible that in verse, uh, verse 11, that, that, that's really talking about the numbering of the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times, 10,000 that encircled the throne? Is that talking about believers? I think so, too. I think, we're, I think we'll definitely be there by this point. Yep. I think that's why at the end of chapter 3, the church is not mentioned anymore. And I believe from Revelation 4 on, everything it's talking about, the church has been raptured, as we've talked about already in the book of Revelation. And we are in heaven, and we are part of this worship of God. Yeah. So you know what's going to be neat now, as you brought that up, is one day we're going to be there doing this, and you're going to go... I remember the mine back in Chandler when, when Jeff, we, we talked about it. We're here. This is going on. See, that's what's cool. See? You're going to be able to go, ah, oh, yeah, being a ha moment. Yeah. So, all right? And I'll be looking at her going, yeah, I told you. That's right. I told you. No, I'll, you know what? I'll probably be like, oh, my God. You know. Yes, question. Name Jack Hayford mean anything to you? Yes. Okay. Uh, he doesn't speculate. I heard a recent sermon. Uh, this goes back to the uh, Isaiah 52, where it says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form was beyond that of the sons of men. Okay, this is prophecy, of course. Right. Okay. These two men that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus mm-hmm. did not recognize him. Mary did not recognize him. The disciples did not recognize him. Is it possible he was so disfigured that he is like he looks today? Slain, dead. All the other marks. Uh, Why would he have just the marks on his on his feet and his hands? Well, I, my personal belief, sir, is I think that's a symbolic thing in a sense. I agree 100%. I think the Bible prophesied that Jesus was going to be so beaten. I mean, we we know his beard was pulled out. He was beaten in the face. He was scourged. That even before he went to the cross. Most people believe that a normal human being would have probably even been dead before they even got to the crucifixion based upon the beating that Jesus took. We certainly believe that Isaiah was exactly right. He didn't even look human on the cross. But I believe if you study that passage, especially the one you referred to about the disciples on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples and Mary 
you will find that it's a, it was a supernatural blinding of them to be able to see Jesus at that point. It wasn't a physical thing. It was more a, a spiritual thing. That God was sort of putting a veil, if you will, over their understanding at that point till he revealed himself. Okay, again, that's my understanding of it. But I, you know, I would encourage you guys to read those passages and study them for yourself. But I'm not debating the fact that Jesus was beaten and scourged and looked terrible. And certainly the Bible says that even here in Revelation that he is the lamb and it would look like he had been slain. In other words, he has some kind of marks upon him that shows that he had that sacrificial love for us. But yeah, that's a... Certainly one way to look at it, that's for sure. Yeah. And that's what this is all about. Again, that's why it's called the mind, because we're to dig deep into God's Word, and these things that are brought up and shared and whatever, I encourage you, yeah, study it for yourself. Go for it. <laughs> that's what we're here for. Anything else? Yes. Just a real quick one. You touched a little bit on the number seven. Right. The significance of that meaning a perfect number. Could you just elaborate <laughs> a little bit more? Well, again, I don't want to... It's a good thing. If you ever get a chance to study biblical numbering, and I don't want to call it numerology because that's getting way out there. But some, there, there, there are really good studies out there where people have taken like all the numbers that the Bible uses for things and how you see a pattern it develops. That the number six, every time it's used in the Bible, it's used for a particular way of looking at things. The number seven is used that way. The ten, ten commandments. Uh, the number twelve. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 this, 12 that. So there are patterns that develop if you study, if you like numbers and you're a mathematician, knock yourself out. (laughs) Math was my worst subject in school, so guess what? I never studied it, you know? What I've done is I've leaned upon others who have studied it before me. But I have studied enough to see that, yeah, there is definitely a pattern there. And anytime you see the number seven, it's sort of the number of completion, going all the way back to when God made the world, He made it in seven days, and after the seventh day, he rested and said, it's good. And so, you know, seven has always sort of been used as a sort of a number that when seven's used, it's sort of a completeness there. Yeah. But good good stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever want a chance to study that, just study the patterns of the way numbers are used in the Bible. It's very interesting. It really is. But I... You know, I would also encourage you, there's some really good books out there that's already been written on it that's done all the research for you. I mean, you can you can certainly look up the verses yourself and, and make sure that what they're saying is true, but there, there have been people out there. I don't know the names of those books off the top of my head, but there's some good books. You could Google it, you know, something like that and find it real quick. Yeah. Yes? Do you know what the last prophecy The last fulfilled prophecy to date? No, I do not. I, I will say this. It has something to do with the nation of Israel. Uh, and uh, if nothing else, one of the prophecies concerning Israel is that they will be scattered, but then they will also be brought back to their home and, of course, establish a homeland, which was back in, what, 47? 48. 48. Sorry, that's a little bit before my time. Uh, 1948. So, you know, that's one of the prophecies that, you know, we've at least seen fulfilled in this, you know, time. Uh, and certainly another one that we can just see fulfilled all the time is this whole hostility between the Palestinians and the Jews dates all the way back to the book of Genesis of how all that got started. So it just shows you how 
you know, boy, it can just carry over into generations. And again, people in the world may say, well, why are they always at each other's throats and can't get along? Why can't we all just get along? Well, guess what? The Bible tells us why. If, if people would just read the Bible, there's a very, again, clear explanation of why the Palestinians and the Jews don't, don't get along with each other. But it would have to deal with the nation of Israel. Uh, Certainly that was part of one, yeah. Yeah, just seeing how God protected them. I mean, here's this little nation in the middle of all these people who basically want to blow them into the water and be done with them and annihilate them, and yet they're they're there. And there's no human reason why they're still there, but God is keeping them there. And that's the only reason. I mean, all those other nations over there that surround them just want to totally blow them off the planet. And the only person who's keeping them there is the God who's on the throne. The God who's on the throne. Yeah. Still true today. Still true today. Yeah. Yeah. And always will be. And I will say this, and then we're just going to touch on chapter 6 for a moment tonight. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Part of the reason why God has blessed the United States of America, as much as he has in spite of the fact that sometimes America has turned its back on God and continues to turn their back on God and his principles and his word, is because... God did promise that those people who bless you, I'll bless. Those people who turn their back on you. So part of the reason why God has continued to sustain America and bless them as much as he has, in spite of all the other wrong that we've done, is because we are one of the only nations in the world that is willing to stand by Israel. And as long as we stand by Israel... We're okay, but if we as a nation ever turn our back against Israel, well, look out. God's promises are true. He will fulfill all he promised. So again, look to the nation of Israel, that little, little tiny country right there in the middle of the whole world. It really is sort of the straw that stirs the whole drink around here when you come to biblical prophecy and God's plan and purpose. Now that doesn't mean God... Obviously, he's building his church today. But again, as we're going to see in just a few uh, chapters, next week probably, God now, because the church is gone, see, is going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel during this time. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are going to be saved and come to know Jesus Christ, even in this dark time of history. Again, because his mercy and his grace is still going to be there. Let me just get to chapter 6, and then we'll pick it up here next week. I don't want to go through all the judgments. Really no reason to. They're judgments, okay? You can read them for yourself. But I do want to point this out. Beginning in chapter 6, you will notice very clearly that it is the Lamb who's opening the scroll. These judgments are not by coincidence. They do not arise by chance. They are all under divine control, and they are all being opened up by the Lamb of God But remember, before he judged, he took this judgment. And all those who were going to go through this judgment would not have had to had they accepted the judgment that he already took on the cross. So notice, the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3, when the lamb opened the second seal. Verse 5, when the lamb opened the third seal. Verse 7, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal. Verse 9. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal. So, 
All the seals are being opened, but they're being opened by the Lamb. It is clear that Jesus Christ is the one who is opening up the seals and the judgments are coming from the very throne of God and from the Lamb of God, who is the only one that was found in the universe worthy to even look upon this scroll that he is beginning to crack and open seal after seal after seal. I do want to close with this. And I hope, if nothing else, that our study of Revelation, as we as we begin to, to embrace the fact that there are going to be thousands of people upon the earth who have rejected Christ, but who could still come to Christ, that if nothing else, it would motivate us to take every opportunity God gives us, even this week, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And if God gives us an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus who doesn't know Jesus, let's take it so that maybe God can use us to share the gospel with them so that they never have to go through what's coming upon this earth. But I do want to point this out. Notice the last two verses, or excuse me, the last three verses of Revelation chapter 6. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, the judgment of God is without respect of persons. Notice the kings of the earth, the very important people, the generals, the rich, the powerful, oh yeah, and everyone, slave and free. If I missed anybody, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to withstand it? Now a couple things. First of all, sin warps our minds. That's what the Bible teaches. Sin warps our perspective. How is it that they think that... These judgments are coming, and they know who and where they're coming from. I mean, that's very clear. They know where they're coming from. And somehow they think that this omnipotent, omniscient God, odd God that they can hide from Him? That's how we're, we're, we're going to try to hide from God. Sort of like Adam and Eve. We've sinned, and now we're going to try to hide from God. Did they really think they were going to go anywhere to hide from God? We can't hide from God. But that's the way sin is. When you embrace sin rather than the Savior, your perspective gets warped. You're not thinking clearly. And these people obviously opting for sin over the Savior and over His payment for their sin, they've got a warped perspective on things. And then secondly, why not call out, God, save us, rather than rocks fall on us? You see. You know, I really believe that if they would just call out even at this point, Jesus saved me, he would. Because we're going to see. If you read the rest of the book of Revelation, thousands upon thousands of people are going to come to Christ during the tribulation. Many people are going to end up in heaven even though they've went through the tribulation, period. So it's not like God is unwilling to save. Even in the darkest hour of history, he's still reaching out to people. And isn't it crazy that all these people would have to do is just say yes to Jesus, but they won't. They won't. They would rather say, fall on us and hide us from his wrath. And then the last point I want to make is, notice they say, who's able to stand or withstand this? And the answer is, those who have Jesus Christ. The Bible simply says that we can stand before God, not because of our own righteousness, but because we have accepted the righteousness of Christ the Bible says that everyone in this room who has Christ, that we can stand before this God 
this great and awesome God that we've talked about who's worshipped all day and all night without ceasing in heaven and who is sitting on the throne tonight. Remember that when you wake up tomorrow, that whatever you face tomorrow, this God in the book of Revelation is on that throne and He has made you His promises and He will fulfill those promises, my friend. He wants His very best for your life. He wants you to simply come to a point where you are willing to just give your life totally to Him and say, God, not about me anymore. Just do with my life whatever you want, because I know your way is the best way. These people could do it also. And some people will. And so one of the motivations that God gives me when I study the book of Revelation and see these judgments being poured out on these people is, you know what? I can make a difference in eternity right now, because God's going to give me a chance to talk to somebody even this week that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And maybe he'll open up that door to where God can use me to share the good news that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, took that penalty for them. And they don't need to take the penalty themselves. Jesus Christ did that. That's what the cross is all about. And hopefully God will give all of us a chance to share that with somebody this week. Guys, you have been awesome. As always, you've been great. Thank you so much. Let's close with prayer. And before we do, are there any of those mine cards left? We passed them all out. A couple left. If you need a couple more, and I will get more next week, thank you for just trying to get the word out. We've still got about 15, 20 seats left here. I'd love to see this place filled up on Tuesday night. Guys, I would love to see it. I think what we're talking about is just so cool and so important, and just it can encourage us, and it can encourage others, and I hope that maybe you'll say, hey, why don't you come with me next Tuesday and check this Bible study out. I would love to see some folks bring some friends with them. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for this encouraging word tonight, that Lord, even though we're getting into the judgments that you're uh, putting upon the earth, that Father, we, we do remember that the Lamb of God took our judgment. And Father, we can leave here tonight knowing that our sins are forgiven and we're on our way to that real place called heaven that we've seen just a little glimpse of tonight where, Lord, there's just so much worship of you. Father, help my life to be filled with worship. Help me to be motivated by the worship that I've seen in heaven already tonight. And help me to take those opportunities to share Jesus with those who don't know Jesus. And Father, just... May you just grip my heart tonight with these chapters we've looked at. And No, we've not looked at, at them as in-depth as we could have, but Lord, I believe we've touched the, the high points and the most important things that you've written in those chapters. And Lord, grip our hearts with this information and help it not to just be information that we store in our head, but help it to be transformation and help it to change our lives to make us more like Jesus. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You're great. I missed you. It's so good to be back with you. See you next Tuesday.